10 Minute Talks, a podcast in which the world's leading professors explain the latest thinking in the humanities and social sciences in just 10 minutes. My name is Peter Bowler. I'm Emeritus Professor of the History of Science at Queen's University, Belfast, and a Fellow of the British Academy, the UK's National Academy for the Humanities and Social Sciences. I've spent most of my career as a historian of science studying the impact of evolutionism not only on science but on the way we think about the world we live in and our position in that world. I've been asked to record this talk to celebrate Darwin Day, which is the anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin on the 12th of February 1809, and we celebrate this because Darwin is now recognized as the founding father of modern evolutionism. In fact, the process by which he gained this iconic status is a fairly complex one, and that's what interests me. No one claims that uh, Darwin was the first to suggest the idea of evolution, that is, that new species appear by modification of older ones rather than divine creation. In fact, his own grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, had written about this at the end of the previous century. But it was Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, published towards the end of 1859, that sparked off a debate that quite rapidly uh, convinced most scientists and indeed most educated people that evolution uh, was uh, valid uh, uh, as an alternative to uh, divine creation, which more conservative figures wanted to retain. Nowadays, we have another explanation, uh, reason for uh, celebrating Darwin's uh, position. Not only was he recognized as the founder of evolutionism, which happened very rapidly. By the time he uh, died in 1882, he was buried in Westminster Abbey as a hero of science. But we also recognize him as the originator of the explanation of how evolution works that is still uh, seen as the most plausible today. This is the theory of natural selection. This was also suggested by Alfred Russell Wallace in 1858, uh, but Darwin uh, had got the idea earlier, and Wallace himself always admitted that Darwin had led the way in promoting the theory. Natural selection depends on the observation that uh, a population, making up a species, consists of a lot of individuals who are not the same. They vary amongst themselves, and these variations are usually seen as uh, pretty uh, trivial and undirected. Nowadays, we attribute many of these uh, characteristics to the genes, which transmit them from one generation to the next, and the variations ultimately originate in genetic mutations, that is, uh, copying errors uh, as in the course of transmission. And that's why they are pretty uh, undirected, uh, rather than having any specific purpose. What Darwin realized was that if a species was exposed to a changing environment, some of those variant characters just by chance would turn out to be beneficial, uh, others uh, harmful. Those that were beneficial would allow the uh, organisms with those characters to survive and breed better, uh, and of course vice versa. 
and over many generations this will change the makeup of the population uh, and ultimately a new species uh, would uh, be formed. That's the explanation we uh, use today. Now Darwin didn't have the science of genetics. His own ideas on heredity were very different to the modern ones. And partly for that reason, but also for others that I'm going to explore, uh, it turns out that uh, Darwin converted the world to evolutionism, even though most people at the time didn't think his theory of natural selection was the best possible uh, explanation. Uh, they didn't like natural selection, and for several uh, decades, uh, scientists and many others looked for alternative explanations of how evolution uh, would work. And I spent quite a lot of time investigating these alternatives, which I'd love to describe to you, but unfortunately it would take a lot longer than this uh, video would, uh, would allow me to, to, to fill in. So what I, I want to do instead is concentrate on what these things tell us about the situation in which Darwin was able to convert the world to evolutionism quite rapidly, yet no one took his explanation of it seriously. That seems something of a paradox. People didn't like natural selection, they looked for a lot of alternatives, and I'm interested in what those alternatives gave to them that helped them to accept the theory of evolution. It's as though, almost as though, on the question of evolution itself, Darwin was pushing at an open door. The origin of species had lots of indirect evidence in favour of that, and most progressive uh, thinkers were quite happy to accept that and to convert to the general idea of, of evolution. And that's why the conversion took place relatively uh, rapidly at the time. But it's as though people were looking for a somewhat different kind of evolutionism to the one that Darwin was proposing. They wanted uh, uh, to believe in an evolutionary process that was purposeful and progressive, that was advancing in a, a positive line, as though there was a main line of evolution, preferably one that was uh, aimed at producing the human race as the sort of pinnacle of the whole process. In a sense, retaining the traditional idea that humanity has a key role to play in, in the universe. And that's precisely what Darwin's theory doesn't really allow you uh, to believe. Because natural selection doesn't work in a way that has a... a, a goal and endpoint in mind towards which the whole process is working. And think about natural selection, how it works. The variations are pretty uh, purposeless in, in themselves. It's only by chance that a few of them turn out to be beneficial in what uh, the uh, philosopher of the evolutionary movement at the time, Herbert Spencer, called the survival of the fittest. And some people at the time thought that the fittest were the best in some sort of absolute sense, so that human beings were the fittest, highest point in creation. But for Darwin, fitness means just fitted to the local environment. It what, it's what works in allowing the organism to cope uh, with the local environment. And natural selection is, in a sense, a process of trial and error. Lots of random variations pick out the few that happen to do best, but it's only 
best in the local conditions. And that means there can be no directing uh, agency pushing evolution in a single purposeful uh, direction. And we can see the implications of that in another innovation of Darwin's, one that he actually came to even before he got the idea of natural selection. Uh, this is the way of representing evolution uh, as what we now call the tree of life, depicting evolution as a branching tree uh, with many branches going out in different directions, the species being at the end of each branch, but the branches constantly splitting and resplitting as, as time uh, goes on. Darwin uh, used uh, a primitive form of a, a tree of life, uh, a diagram like that, in uh, one of his notebooks uh, that he wrote after returning to the, the UK from the voyage of the Beagle. Uh, this uh, notebook has hit the headlines recently, has seems to have disappeared from the collection of his papers at uh, Cambridge University. In this notebook, Darwin is speculating about the implications of his observations on the voyage of the Beagle, in particular, uh, we all are familiar nowadays with his work on the Galapagos Islands and the different uh, species that are found on those islands, particularly the different uh, species of finch that are found and now called uh, Darwin's finches, each adapted to a different uh, way of life suited to the conditions on the uh, particular island. And what Darwin was trying to do with his first little diagram of a tree was to indicate that what was once a single population must have split in various directions uh, as it was uh, split up on the different islands and each subpopulation then adapted in its own way. So the tree is multiple branching, the branches are going in many different directions. And if you add that up over uh, vast periods of time, of course, each branch in itself may branch again. And the significant point is that Darwin's tree is really a bush, not a tree. It's not like a Christmas tree with a central trunk and a lot of side branches leading onwards and upwards with the human species appearing at the top of the Christmas tree like the, 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 the angel that we stick uh, on top and all the branches being just going off away from the main line. Darwin's tree is really a bush. It doesn't have a central trunk and each branch is going off in a different direction and each is as valid uh, uh, as any other. Now, what that means is that there isn't uh, a main line for evolution uh, at all. Evolution is not being pushed towards uh, some particular goal. And if you think about the ancestry of the human species, it means that at any point in our past history, if our ancestors had been pushed into a slightly different environment, things would have gone differently, and we wouldn't be here. There would be no human race. There would be a world with living things in it, but they wouldn't be humanity. It's even possible, uh, and Darwin himself believed that evolution was, in the long run at least, progressive, even possible there could be something else that was intelligent, but not human. And that was a very difficult thing for people to accept. And this is what accounts for the reluctance to accept uh, Darwin's particular approach to evolution. And the reason why people were looking for alternatives, the point of most of those alternatives being precisely to give a sense of purpose and direction to evolution and to allow them to 
construct trees of life which were more like the Christmas tree. And we see that in a number of the popular presentations of evolution uh, in the period after Darwin popularized the term. It took some time for people to start to come to terms with this rather disturbing image of humanity as not the goal of evolution, but just what happened to come about uh, in the history of life on this particular planet, the Earth. Um, and it seems to me that it's only towards the end of the 19th century that people at last began to face up to this rather disturbing prospect and come around to a more Darwinian view. We see this in the science fiction stories, for instance, of H.G. Wells, written in the 1890s. Uh, the Martians, for instance, of the War of the Worlds are intelligent. They have high in, uh, better technology than ours, yet they're completely alien. And this concept of the non-human alien intelligence, which becomes a standard theme in science fiction, it's something that only makes sense if you believe that evolution doesn't have to turn out with humanity as its final goal. Uh, on, on different conditions on Mars, something else becomes inte intelligent, but non-human. We've all, I think, or most of us nowadays, have had to come to terms with this rather more insecure position that we seem to have in the world. Uh, and Darwinism, I think, is a, plays an important role in forcing us to uh, come to the realization that humanity is not uh, the, the central goal uh, of creation. That's why we celebrate his work today. There are, of course, still some who find it very difficult to come to terms with the implications of that theory and resist it. These are people, perhaps, who wish that Darwin had never come up with his dangerous idea. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this British Academy podcast. Please subscribe, share and rate this series from wherever you get your podcasts. For more events and conversations, please visit www.thebritishacademy.ac.uk or find and follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.